0: Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 241A of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about your mysterious feedback on some of our recent episodes. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. So let's get right into it. We have uh, some feedback on some of our previous episodes here, like I mentioned, and our first feedback comes from Timothy Lim. Jimmy, can you tell us about this? Yeah,
1: uh, Timothy Lim is a comic book artist that I know, and I recently got a postcard from him. The front of the postcard, which we'll have, uh, in just a moment for the video version. There we go. Uh, is, uh, so this postcard is from Roswell, New Mexico. It shows the, the desert around Roswell, and there's a UFO in the process of abducting a man in a big beam of light. Um, and so that's a nice postcard, but, uh, Tim personalized it on the back. And on the back, he's drawn the UFO abducting me. So he's got a a caricature of me saying, it's always aliens, which is probably (laughs) what I would say in that situation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Fantastic. Our next feedback comes from Jillian, who uh, also sent in some fan art. And if you're watching the stream, you can see it now or watching the video, you can watch it now. Uh, And this is what Jillian wrote. Hi, Jimmy and Dom attached to some fan art of the show that I recently finished. I've been a big fan since the show started, and I'm super glad I got around to creating this illustration. The illustration contains images of the Hindenburg, a drop bear, pyramids, aliens, a UFO, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Noah's Ark, Bigfoot, a ghost, a generic ghost since y'all have told so many different ghost stories, and the Cottingley Fairies. And of course, Dom's in there too! Hmm. I have a background in cartooning and comics, and several of the Mysterious World episodes have been so interesting that I've written them down on my list of graphic novels I want to create one day. I think the FBI Secrets Exposed episode especially deserves a comic adaptation. If you're ever in need of a graphic designer, illustrator, or cartoonist, I'm available for hire. My website is JillianChapman.com. My Instagram is at KiwiCranium. If you'd like to see more of my work. Thanks for everything you all do. Mysterious World is a great show, and I hope it keeps going for years to come. Thanks, Jillian. That's certainly the plan.
1: And thank you for the fan art. It's really great to, it, and kind of, it, it's interesting to me that we got uh, uh, illustrations as fan art from two different professional comic book artists uh, at the same time. And so um, they're both, I like them both. Um, in um, Jillian's, for those who who are able to see it, or even for those who aren't able to see it, it has, uh, me and it's got a really large beard, but it, um, it has me picking up a little green gray alien by one (laughs) of its feet and kind of scrutinizing it, uh, carefully. And, um, it looks like I'm picking up a little, I don't know, polywog or something and looking (laughs) at it.
0: Um, So it's really cool. Thank you very much. I love it. I love the style too. It's a great style. It's very fun. That's awesome. All right. So our next feedback is going to be from Joe, who says this. Hello, Jimmy and Dom. My name is Joe from Louisiana.
1: I have a question for both of you. It isn't in reference to any one episode. I was wondering that with all the research you have done in the production of the podcast Mysterious World, is there any topic you still consider mysterious? Is there something that you just can't rationalize? Thank you. So, Dom, he said it was for both of us. How about you? You go first.
0: For me, it's it's always going to be Skinwalker. Just I I still remember when we talked about it. I watched the the Secrets of Skinwalker Ranch show on History Channel, and it's just the show, the, the TV show. I, I don't know. They maybe they go a little too sensationalist, but the stuff that you and I talked about is really still baffles me. I, -hmm. there are things about that. I just can't, you know, come up with a rational, non-exotic explanation. There may be one, but I just can't reconcile it myself. And hopefully there'll be more information at some point. That's for me, that's the, that's the big one. Uh Uh-huh. For me,
1: there are multiple ones. Um, So, you know, Joe asked, are there ones that are still mysterious? And the answer is sure. When I give the bottom line at the end of at the end of our discussion of a mystery, you know, sometimes I've been able to narrow down what it might be, but not get to a firm conclusion at the end. Um, You know, I may be able to to go from, you know, here are five theories that could explain it to two, but but I still don't ultimately know which of the two it is. And you'll hear me say things like that at the end of a lot of episodes. Um, I frequently will say that at the end of UFO-oriented episodes. um, I have yet to encounter a UFO case where I'm convinced it had an exotic explanation. I'm very open to some of them being exotic explanations. I can't rule that out, but I also ha- have yet to meet a case where I feel the evidence is so compelling that it has to be something exotic. Um, although also in UFO episodes, we do cover cases where I I don't think it's exotic at all, uh, where I think it's hoaxed. For example, uh, the Devil's Den uh, encounter, despite the fact it was in Arkansas, I don't believe that guy. And similarly, Stephen Greer is a lying liar who lies, and so his summoning UFO CE five thing is uh, is just fake. Um, other episodes where which aren't UFO related or aren't uh, you know primarily about UFOs um, would include episode fifteen on the JFK assassination. Uh, In that one, I concluded you're not crazy no matter what your theory is. There's evidence that points both ways. Um, And so that one can be read multiple different ways. The two basic are, was there a conspiracy or not? But then if there is a conspiracy, who was it? And there are a bunch of options there. Uh, Skinwalker Ranch and also episode 202 on the Blue Panic Orbs, which is a a uh, sequel to skinwalker ranch those were ones that are still mysterious to me episode 53 on the bets sphere was very mysterious um i think the object is probably non exotic but i don't know what it is um and it's it's really weird uh episodes 117 and 118 on ingo swan's book penetration i don't know what what's up with that it's a really wild story and we've got one that's coming up. Um, I, I do have tentative proposals, but it's still mysterious to me. Episode two forty four on the Versailles time slip. I'm I I am I can narrow it down and make a tentative proposal, but I'm not I'm I am not convinced I understand what happened in that instance. So you'll be hearing all about that soon.
0: Excellent. Our next feedback comes from Mike Minicky via email, who writes. As you know, Mysterious World was doing updates every 50 episodes or so, and I thought you or Jimmy, meaning me, had mentioned you'd continue trying to do this. Since we're well past episode 200, I was wondering if that plan was on hold for now, or if perhaps one is planned for the near future. Keep up the great work. Thanks.
1: So yeah, the the plan, and I, I came up with the plan, was to do uh, an updates episode every 50 episodes, and that would work out to... You know, basically one a year. Um, and that seemed like a good idea to me to update, you know, listeners on the stories that we'd covered previously once a year and say, here's what's happened with them. Um, unfortunately, I discovered that composing those episodes involves a lot of work. And at least at the time, I was... Um, I was struggling to, to get new scripts ready because I'm basically writing a, you know, a 30 page script every week. And in addition to doing the research needed to write that and, and going back and reviewing and updating, uh, just involved a lot of work. Now, if, if I had a volunteer who could help with that work, that might make a difference. But, um, but I've been thinking about how do we want to handle updates? Um, we might, especially if there was a volunteer, we might do update episodes like the original plan, and it'd be a once a year thing. Um, but I've thought about other possibilities. One is including updates in regular episodes, and we recently did that uh, for ep- we did an update for episode 123 on Father uh, Michel Rodrigue. Uh, he had predicted certain things that involved Pope Benedict, and so when Pope Benedict died, we did an update immediately in the very next episode we recorded uh, at the beginning of the episode to say, hey, guess what? Just like I predicted, Father Rodrigue's prophecies did not come true. Um, that hasn't come out yet. It, it, it's actually at the beginning of episode 244 on the Versailles time slip, which will be coming out the first week in February. Uh, Another suggestion that Dom proposed was maybe we do updates in feedback episodes like this one. So that's also a possibility. Um, I that would both of those proposals would end up scattering them throughout the year. And I recognize there's a there's a value to having them gathered together in a single update episode. But that involves more concentrated work than I may be able to do on my own. And, you know, maybe a volunteer would be interested in that. But and I would have to think about how that would how that would work. I'm not sure that it would, but I'm still thinking about how to handle updates. But we do plan to do them.
0: Great. Uh, Father Horton sends an email. He writes, Listening to the feedback episode reminded me that I don't think I've ever thanked you for telling me about aphantasia. I have it, but didn't realize it was a thing, like many others in my situation, it seems. Ignatian and related methods of prayer rely heavily on visualize yourself in this situation or imagine this, etc. No matter how diligently I tried, I couldn't get anywhere. Now I know why. And can A, stop worrying and B, go on and try other things that work better? Thanks. Well, glad we were able to help. Good for you, Um, Father. uh, Picture yourself in a
1: situation where I'm shaking your hand and patting you on the back. That's awesome.
0: All right. And our next feedback comes from Bridget, who writes, My husband and I stumbled upon Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World this summer while looking for road trip entertainment, and we've spent the past several months evangelizing it to family and friends. We especially appreciate the respect and rationality with which the show approaches such a wide variety of topics. Thanks for all the work you do. I recently participated in a writing contest in which I was given a genre and keyword with which to produce a rhyming story within a tight deadline. My genre was ghost story, and he was able to draw inspiration from one of my favorite episodes, The Haunted House of Marin County. I received second place in my heat and will move on to the next round of the competition. So thank you for giving me a fun idea for a genre in which I don't usually write. I included the series of sonnets below. Thanks again for this enjoyable and informative podcast.
1: Well, that's great, Bridget, and congratulations on getting second place in your poetry heat. Um, Now, after I heard from Bridget, I emailed her her collection of sonnets to Lloyd Auerbach, who was the guest in that episode, and he uh, thought the poem was really cool. Um, I also asked Bridget if she might be interested in sending us an audio recording so we could hear the sonnets in the author's voice. And she did do that. Uh, We're going to play it for you. It's about three and a half minutes long, but here is Bridget's uh, poetry cycle based on the uh, haunted house of Marin County.
2: Apparition. The dollars, monthlies, finance, options, bills. They circle round my thoughts while dishes rinse. My mother and her broken mind that spills in tantrums, fights, aggression, railed against a world that's unfamiliar to her now. A sound breaks through my reverie, a voice I do not recognize. I hear it round the corner playing with my two young boys. I tiptoe to the playroom, and there sits a little girl, old fashioned, small, and strange. She rolls toy cars along the rug and flits so quick my boys start laughing. Then a change. Her eyes look up at me, I'm tense with fear. She tilts her head, she smiles, she disappears. This massive, glamorous house, it belies the worries dogging my steps. Hardship, death, my mother's failing mind. The world it tries, but cannot give our lungs one extra breath. And all the money in the world can't add one single moment to my mother's life. Can't make her lucid, drag back thoughts she had five years ago before our current strife. With laundry piled high, I trudge upstairs until a woman's voice arrests my step. She's there. She's smiling at my son's dark hair, young face, familiar, beautiful, except she vanishes. But I've seen her somewhere in memories, gentle hands in my hair. Nurse, I checked the dates and times you asked for and Heart in my throat and phone at my ear. Nurse, trust me, honey. I'm head of this floor. And at those times, your mother was right here. She wasn't sneaking out to you and back. We had her here, safe and sound and sleeping. Asleep, you're sure? I asked. Then a face, racked with pain, appeared, drawn and raw and weeping. My mother clutched the granite countertop, her grizzled, messy hair, her wrinkled face, the mother I knew yesterday, mine stopped, with tangles, plaques, and chemo, woven lace inside her brain. Did you have her meds changed? I asked the nurse. I think my mom's in pain. I turned from eggs and melted cheese to see my mother sitting at the breakfast bar. Startled, I dropped the omelet and its cheese splattered the hardwood floor. A diamond star to her lapel pinned, pearls in both her ears. My mother of five years before, prim, sleek, and glamorous. Her eyes now had no tears. I gasped. But mom, how? I managed to creak. I missed you so, she said. I had to use this chance to thank you for intervening. They've fixed my meds now, and so thanks to you, you see me at my best. She was beaming. She reached her hand to me, and mine passed through. My barest whisper, Mom, I've missed you too. My phone rang as I tucked my boys in bed. My husband answered, but I snatched it back. He shook his head. The hospital, he said. And breathing, praying my voice wouldn't crack, I answered. Their response was no surprise. Come soon, your mother will not last the night. Gold headlights and deep darkness met my eyes till I arrived in harsh, sanitized light. She lay in bed, grizzled, fragile, and small. I was incensed by tears that filled my eyes. I'd said goodbyes these past five years and all for her to give me hope again, then die. She stirred, eyes opened, and she held my gaze. I clutched her hand until they closed again
1: and that's the poem so thank you uh thank you so much for sending that bridget i know how difficult it how difficult it can be to write to form uh in poetry um in fact i remember back in 1980 now you were writing in sonnets and there are five of them here um i remember back in 1982 i was at the performance of a piece that was a, included the performance of a different Set form of poetry known as a sestina, and and sestinas involve repeating stanzas where each line ends on the same word, and it can be really hard to uh, to write in that way. At you know, because you've got to meet this very particular form. And in fact, the sestina that was performed at this event was about how hard it is to write a sestina. And I've, I've I've periodically searched for that. I'd love to find it again. Um, if anybody encounters a sestina that includes the words sestina and coffee, um, let me know because that would that would be it. I remember one of the lines was like, but then the word comes around to coffee, and you've got to think of some reason for that word to appear there. Um, but, uh, you know, writing like this is challenging. And so congratulations, um, you know, it's not, uh, it w- the, what you did was a, was inspired by, um, the same events and you played them in an interesting emotional way by making it more personal to the speaker in the poem where it's not just a lady living up the street. It's actually her mother. And so, when she seems to have this renewed youth as the little girl, but then her mom dies anyway, I mean, that's very affecting. So, good job and congratulations on winning second place in your heat. Our next
0: feedback is some feedback we received on feedback for on episode 216, Investigating Robert Riggi. Uh This is from Jennifer, who has this to say.
3: Yeah. Jennifer and I am a long-time listener. I just started listening to today's episode, uh, November 30th, Mysterious Feedback, and I actually noticed that nobody gave you the feedback I wanted to give you about your episode with Mr. Biddle. I actually went after your episode with him and listened to his episode where he interviewed you. And I have to say, it really, really amazed me how gracious you were on his show with non believers who cracked jokes that were sometimes not quite the thing. You just really blew me away with your grace, your gentleness, the way you answered their questions in a very witnessing sort of way without being over the top. And it has just stuck with me since I listened to it. I don't necessarily want this played on your show. I just wanted to let you know that I did go listen to you on his show, and I just really thought it was amazing. So that's all. I hope you have a good day. Thanks. Bye-bye.
1: Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. Now, you said you didn't want it necessarily played on the show, so I took that as you're okay with us playing it on the show. And And thank you for the feedback. Um, for people who may not remember, Kenny Biddle who was a guest I had in our episode on investigating the psychic Robert Riggie, who was another lying liar who lies. Um, and Kenny did research that exposed that. And so I, I used that episode to talk about research techniques for investigating things like this. Um, Kenny was one of my instructors for the course on uh, parapsychology and skepticism that I, uh, took at Ryan Research University or Ryan Education Center. Um, the, um, Uh, Kenny uh, is uh, coming from a skeptical perspective, but he's an open-minded skeptic, uh, which makes him different than the kind of rabid deniers like James Randi and so forth. So, And he's also a great guy. And so he had invited me on his YouTube channel where he has a show called The Skeptical Help Bar. Um, And that's one he does every Friday. And uh, he had me on for a whole episode and I took a lot of questions from his audience. Um, There was... An official topic, but we kind of got away from that in part of it. And it turns out that, um, and it, I had a great time doing it. You know, as you say, some of their stuff's a little off color, um, but you know, I, I can deal with that. And it was it was a great experience. Um, one of the things that they have on Kenny's uh, program is occasionally is something called Open Mic Night where there's not a set topic and people can ask about anything they want. So it's like an AMA. And it's like, oh, I do that every Thursday on Catholic Answers Live. That We call that an open forum. And um, there was uh, some movement. And so far, Kenny has hosted all of the, at least at the time, uh, Kenny had hosted all of the open mics. But there was a movement that got started. Uh, I forget if Kenny suggested it first or if the listeners suggested it first to have me do an open mic on uh, Kenny's program. And and Kenny was in favor of that. So now hopefully at some point in the future, I'll be back and, and be taking whatever questions his listeners would care to throw at me.
0: So our next set of feedback comes from our bonus episode 226A, Can Catholics Follow Astrology? And the first feedback comes from Rob Leonardi, who wrote on Facebook, with the correlation of the sun and vitamin D and time of year and such, what evidence is there of those closer to the equator? Would they all be equivalent to a Cancer slash Gemini slash Leo since they have the most sun? Well, um,
1: basically, yes, maybe even a little more than that. Uh, So the equator is the part of the Earth where it gets the most sun and so and and it stays constant you don't have this strong shift of seasons the way you do at higher northern and southern latitudes and so you get more consistent not only do you get more sunlight you get more consistent sunlight and so pregnant mothers around the equator would have their they're rocking out on that vitamin D you know their their unborn babies are going to get lots of vitamin D And so, yeah, um, it would be the equivalent of certain signs, but which signs will depend on which hemisphere you're in. If you're in the northern hemisphere, it leans towards the sun during one time of year. And if you're in the southern hemisphere, it leans towards the sun in six months out of six months phase shifted. And so... um, so it would be a, a different set of signs. But basically, yeah, it would be like that. And maybe even more so because you get more sun at the equator uh, than you do at other latitudes.
0: Josh J writes on YouTube, since there are a strong statistic correlation between the amount of vitamin D when our mothers carried us in their wombs and mental illnesses, has a study been done of the effect vitamin D on mental illness in adults, teens, and kids with depression? I know that uh, my understanding is yes, I don't have
1: details, but my impression is that there's actually been quite a good bit of vitamin D research, including um, among adults on mental health issues. Vitamin D is a commonly recommended supplement that people take for a variety of reasons, not just depression or other mental issues. But vitamin D is actually a hormone that is basic to human metabolism. And lots of people are vitamin D deficient, especially these days when people have indoor jobs and a lot of people live at higher or lower latitudes. And so it's it's easy for people not to get enough vitamin D. Some people even have a genetic predisposition that makes it harder for them to absorb vitamin D from their food. And so your doctor, if you're exhibiting symptoms of vitamin D deficiency, your doctor might order a genetic test to see if you are properly absorbing vitamin D. Um, And so as a result of all that, a lot of people uh, take vitamin D supplements. And my understanding is there's been quite a bit of research on those. Among other things, uh, vitamin D has been shown to help prevent infection with COVID. Uh, You do want to be careful if you're taking vitamin D supplements because you can, it is a hormone, you can take too much of it. but Um, it is something that can help with a variety of problems.
0: All right. Our next feedback is from Caroline Norman on YouTube, who writes, the wise men were astrologers who visited Christ after his birth. What is the significance of that? A friend who was a Jehovah's Witness pointed out that they were Zoroastrians so they could read the stars and were part of the occult. So they led to the slaughter of the holy innocents. So, this hypothesis would be that
1: because the the magi were astrologers, that that's an evil occult practice, and as proof of that, um the the innocent babies in Bethlehem got killed. Well, I guess I'd say a couple of things. So the first one is you shouldn't assume that they were Zoroastrians. Uh, Zoroastrians were from Persia or modern Iran. And the Magi may have been Zoroastrians, but they may have been something else too. Uh, They may have been, for example, uh, Babylonian or uh, Nabataean or something like that. So we don't really know the ethnicity. We just know they were from the east of Judea. Um, Second thing is... Th- your theory is not the way Matthew presents this event. And, Caroline, I don't mean your theory. Uh, I mean, I'm speaking to whoever proposed this to you. Um, the it, Matthew does not present the Magi as bad guys who were doing something that is evil and a cult, and that's what led to the slaughter of the innocent, because of their wicked occult involvement. That is, that is not how Matthew presents it. Matthew presents the, um, the magi as good guys who, who took, undertook this big journey to, um, to, to go meet the Messiah. And that's a good thing. Um, in fact, one of the themes in Matthew's gospel, which is clearly written for an audience of Jewish Christians, one of the themes in Matthew's gospel is what I call Gentile interest. And Gentile interest refers to I use it to refer to incidents in the gospels that betray an interest in gentiles and presenting them in a way that anticipates the fact that gentiles will become members of the church in the future and Matthew as an audience for Jewish as a gospel written for an audience of Jewish Christians has repeated instances of gentile interest to telegraph to his audience these guys are going to become part of the church. Do not freak out about that. And that's like why at the, at the very end, I mean, the last thing basically in Matthew's gospel in chapter 28 is the Great Commission where Jesus tells the 12, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore baptizing the to the Gentiles, to the nations, ethnoi in Greek. Um, it's it sometimes translated as go ye into all the nations, but it can also be translated go ye into all the Gentiles and baptize them and uh, teach them everything I've commanded you. Um, And then there are multiple instances throughout Matthew that betray Gentile interest, and the first of them is actually not the Magi. The first are the appearances in the genealogy in chapter one of three women of Gentile, at least three women of Gentile origin. Um, you have uh, David's grandmother, Ruth, who was a Moabitess. You have uh, Hagar, who was a Canaanite. I'm um, not Hagar. Um, oh, I'm blanking. Uh, Joshua, red thread. Uh, her, you know, that lady, um, whose name I'm blanking on. She was a Canaanite, uh, the wife Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, may have been of Gentile origin, and so forth. Um, and by it's not at all usual to include women in ancient Israelite genealogies, and so Matthew's clearly making a point by including these women, and one of the points he is likely making is Gentiles are okay with God. You know, they can even be and are in the line of the Messiah, and you would have to conclude that um, no matter who you think the Messiah is, because he's a descendant of David, and David has Gentile women in his ancestry, so get over it. And then the second big instance of Gentile interest is when the Magi show up to honor Jesus, and that's presented as a good thing. It's symbolic, as the church has long recognized, of uh, the Gentiles coming to Christ in a more general sense. And and the villain in, in the piece is not the Magi, it's Herod. Uh, Herod is portrayed as the bad guy. Um, there's nothing in here censuring astrology as a cult. Um, the um, what who is censured is Herod. And so the Magi actually help the Holy Family because they give them the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So these are valuable gifts that they can use to support their family because they're about to up sticks and go to Egypt and lose their social support network in Judea, and they're going to need money to restart there. So, um, so the gifts that the Magi provided, um, given that Herod was likely to find out about this rumored child anyway at some point, the Magi actually helped provide providentially for the family at the time that the slaughter occurred, and was able to um, to help sustain them, given their imminent move to Egypt. So Matthew just does not present this as a bad group of people doing a bad thing.
0: Our next feedback comes from episode 227 on spoon bending. And the first one comes from Dan Rubino, who sent this email. Hi, Jimmy and Dom, this is Dan Rubino. I'm a longtime patron, but first time caller. I just listened to your episode on spoon bending, and I have a theory about what happened to Jimmy's spoon. I think Jimmy was misled when he was told he was handling a stainless steel spoon. Instead, I think that uh, he was handed a special alloy of nickel and titanium called nitinol. Nitinol is what's known as a shape memory alloy. It has the remarkable, almost magic ability to remember a shape that it was given during a heat treating process. Once cooled down, it can be formed into another shape, but at a very particular temperature, the alloy will transition back to the shape it was originally given during heat treatment. The exact chemistry of the alloy helps determine what temperature this can occur. In your case, I believe the spoons were made with a nitinol alloy conditioned to transform at right around 100 degrees, warm enough that the friction applied in the proper spot on the spoon would trigger the movement. With the right psychological conditioning, you can be made to think you're applying the force needed to bend the spoon, but in reality, all it needs is some heat. You can see dozens of magic trick demonstrations using this alloy on YouTube. I know a lot about this material because I worked with it firsthand. I have a degree in physics and spent eight years working as a metallurgist formulating, melting, casting, and testing nitinol. It is an amazing material that has many real-world applications for things like heart stents and even indestructible wheels for NASA rovers. I think it's also no coincidence that the spoon-bending parties were started by a Boeing engineer. Boeing has been studying this alloy nearly since its invention in the middle of the 20th century, so I think it's possible that the Boeing engineer may have been playing a clever hoax by having access to this rare alloy at a time when almost no one would have heard of it that's my theory. Love the show. God bless. So um, I appreciate
1: the thoughts, Dan. And Dan was one of a number of listeners who tried to come up with uh, naturalistic theories of what could account for the the spoon bending that I was able to do. Um, Basically, all of the theories that I heard involved hoax. Uh, that Angela or Lynn, who were organizers at this party, hoaxed me in some way or and, and or other people. Now, they didn't know who I was. They met me for the first time at the uh, at the event, um, at, at the IRVA conference. Um, and so they would have been hoaxing everybody who was there. Uh, but there are things that are inconsistent with um, uh, each of the naturalistic hoax theories that have been proposed. Now, I want to compliment the listeners. Uh, I think it's great that they're entertaining the possibility of hoax. That's something that always needs to be considered in um, in investigating a mystery. And it certainly needs to be considered, um, you know, if you're hearing about an event like this. But I was there and I still have the spoon. And so I can uh, assess some of the claims that people have come up with or some of the hypotheses that people have come up with that could explain what happened. Um, one of the things that was clear to me w- at the party itself was that this was a bunch of old silverware. Um, it looked like and probably was just something that uh, had been bought uh, I assume by Angela, because she was the one who had seemed to bring the box of silverware. She just bought it all at a, at a thrift store, you know, um, for for cheap. But this is definitely this is old silverware. Um, it has the manufacturer's mark. In this case, it's Rogers. And then the next word is written is kind of hard to read, but it looks like Instaco or something like that fashion and stainless because it's made of stainless steel. Now, one of the difficulties with the nitinol or nitinol theory is that nitinol is non-magnetic unless you get it up to about 900 Celsius or 1600 degrees Fahrenheit. And it is, I can assure you, it's January. It is nowhere close to 900 degrees Celsius in my home office right now. But this is magnetic. Um, I, I got a fridge magnet and tested it, and, and the fridge magnet sticks to it. So uh, that is consistent with this being stainless steel, just like it says in the manufacturer's mark. Um, and it's not consistent with it being uh, nitinol or nitinol. So. Um, good theory. I tested it and it, um, uh, it turns out it looks like it's not night and all. Uh, another theory that someone proposed was that Angela may have, when she briefly uh, took the spoon from me, um, to see if it was ready to go or not, she may have put some kind of substance on the spoon that then caused it to bend uh this would have been like some goop that that made the spoon more flexible at the bend point. And I can assure you that also did not happen. Uh there was no goop on the spoon. Um it 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 would have been obvious if there had been something that was so um, that was able to penetrate the metal so quickly. And make it flexible because it has to. It it has to. It would have to get into the cracks in the metal or just eat away at the metal, and that is not the case. Just looking at the spoon, it is bent, but it has not been distorted by any kind of substance that would that quickly interfere with its molecular structure, uh, because there should be fingerprints or something like that on it, if Angela was holding it and applying a goop to it, um, or my fingerprints from when I bent it. Furthermore, um, I watched it the whole time. She had it for like five seconds. She just took it and felt the heat and gave it back. She didn't have any goop on her hands. There was no goop on the spoon when I got it back. Um, And after I bent it, it re-solidified in seconds which is not what would happen if there had been a uh molecular structure altering goop put on it. Uh it wouldn't have it wouldn't have resolidified that quickly. So, um another interesting theory, but um also
0: inconsistent with with my actual experience. The next email comes from Justin, I'm going to try to say this Justin so Zyoga. Uh it's it's an, that's an interesting name. I'd love to know what uh, ethnicity that is. That's a really I think it's probably Polish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So Justin's email is regarding the spoon bending party that Jimmy attended. A few details raised red flags for me. When evaluating phenomena, I tend to look for elements that get introduced by the host or organizer of an event that seem out of place, i.e. the same type of elements that stage magicians do that provide cover for what they're really doing. In this case, Angela stopped by Jimmy and asked to see his spoon after which she took it said it was ready, and then handed it back to him. I immediately wondered if she did a sleight-of-hand switch, which is why she requested to take it. Couldn't she have identified that the spoon was ready or just told Jimmy to bend the spoon without taking it from him? The taking seems to introduce an unnecessary element to allow for a switch. This would also explain why Lynn told Jimmy only to rub a certain place on the spoon, i.e. because Lynn knew that's where the switched spoon would be able to be bent at. It also would explain why the participants could only select from spoons that were already there rather than bringing their own, i.e. the organizers needed spoons that would match the ones they were going to swap. This is just a hypothesis, but it seems to account for several facts as they were related in the story. So once again, good job, Justin, uh,
1: in coming up with a naturalistic explanation. Um, Let's test it and see how well it was. Well, how well it meets the facts. The first thing I'd say is that people were not prohibited from bringing their own spoons. If you showed up with silverware, you could bend it. Um, The cutlery that they had was provided as a convenience were the people who were there. Um, and uh, so that's one point I would make. Um, secondly, the cutlery was different for different people. We didn't all have the same model of spoon. In fact, um, we didn't all have spoons. Some people had forks. And this the box of cutlery, as I said, was it was clearly old cutlery. It looked like it had been bought in a thrift store. And that would mean and even if it hadn't been old and bought in a thrift store um the diversity of cutlery would make this that different people had would make it prohibitively difficult to do sleight of hand swaps because um angela would have to recognize the not just the fact i had a spoon but the kind of spoon that i had and have that in some hidden source of cutlery, and then do the swap. And uh, there was no hidden source of cutlery. I actually was um, involved in the setting up of the event because, you know, after they, after the previous event, Angela, you know, turned to me and said, here, hand out this silverware to people. And I did. And I therefore was up at the stage looking at the boxes that they had. They had the box of unbent silverware. They had the box of pre-bent silverware, which I then took and handed out to people to show them what was possible. And there there, there was no hidden big box of additional silverware. Um, Lynn told me to focus on a particular place on the spoon right here at the at the top of the neck because I had been going for kind of level two Uh, or high school bending, which could involve bending the bowl and also further down on the straight of the handle. And I was kind of trying for three things at once, at least one of which was a more advanced type of bending than what we were attempting that evening. And Lynn basically just said, look, focus your efforts. Just do the simple. He didn't say it this way, but his message was, you're going to have more success if you just do the kind of initial basic kindergarten bending that we're that we're actually attempting here. So um so that explains his remark. Angela uh had a need to hold the spoon in order to evaluate is it warm enough to bend. And so I handed it to her. She had it for like five seconds. My eyes were on it the entire time. Uh there was no evidence of a sleight of hand maneuver. Um and it was visually the same spoon when I got it back. It had not changed. The handle was not different. The bowl size was not different. It was clearly the same spoon. Um, and so she would have had to, had to have had an exact duplicate in her pocket. And if she was walking around testing people's silverware to see if it's ready to bend or not, and she was doing hand swaps, she would have had to have multiple exact duplicates in her pocket which she could feel were duplicates in order to know which hidden one to reach for and that's that's difficult because you couldn't really with this spoon the design on it is such that you you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to f- get much detail from your from feeling it in your pocket of oh which design is this because people had different kinds of spoons. So that's inconsistent with it. Also, the fact that I bent it means it was not pre bent when she handed it to me. And so, um, so, why then did it instantly solidify after I bent it? Why did it refuse to bend anymore? Um, that's not consistent with it being made of some exotic material that would be easier for me to bend. Um, So I think the evidence does point to this not being swapped out, but good thinking. Our next feedback comes from Shupi Uliuma on Discord, who... and I want to congratulate Dom on saying <laughs> saying the name correctly.
0: You have no that... idea how much I practice that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, so we've talked about King Shupi Uliuma before yes. in uh, in our episode on the murder of King Tut. Uh, Shupi Uliuma was one of the Hittite kings, Yes. and um, at least that's how the ancient name would typically be pronounced. Um, our
0: Shupi Ulyuma on Discord
1: may have his own pronunciation, but good yes. job, Dom.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Uh, he writes, great episode. However, I need to put on my skeptical hat and say that I'm surprised no one tried to recreate spoon bending in laboratory conditions. By this, I mean it would not take too much effort to create a machine that would rub a piece of metal, recreating the effect of human fingers on the metal. Jimmy and pro PK people just mentioned heat. However, in metal bending, there's more going on. People are constantly rubbing it and probably just rubbing it in one location. That's why they told Jimmy to do so at the party. This supplied a constant supply of micro vibrations and mechanical energy, which could possibly induce the metal to soften. Another possibility is that by rubbing it, you are just bending it slightly back and forth and lead to a cumulative weakening of the metal. I think a relatively simple experiment could be done to see if that is the case, such as building a controlled rubbing machine. Okay,
1: I'm going to pass over the use of the phrase rubbing machine. Um but uh I I think it's a a good theory. Um it would be an interesting test to do. Um as far as as far as I know it may have been done because uh there were there have been laboratory tests involving Uh, metal bending and, uh, you know, paranormal metal bending. And that includes looking at the grains of metal under microscopes and so forth. And someone may have tried this with a machine. Um, I would say that I, I don't think the theory that it's caused by micro vibrations just from the rubbing. I don't think it's, I don't, I'm skeptical of that theory. However, it would be interesting to see if a machine can do this, but there's going to be a complication from speaking from uh, the perspective of paranormal researcher. um, There's uh, a known effect in parapsychology that has to be taken into account, which is called the experimenter effect. The if people have psi, which in this case would manifest as psychokinesis, if they have psi, then it activates at will. And one of the things that um, parapsychological researchers have found in doing PK tests is it can be really hard to eliminate the possibility that the experimenter, rather than the test participant, is the person who's doing the PK um because the experimenter is invested in seeing his experiment succeed and so you've got a person they're trying to do pk let's say they've got what's called a psi wheel which is a little wheel that is shielded and you can attempt to turn it psychokinetically so let's say you've got this this test participant who's got a pk wheel in front of them it's shielded so Heat and wind and electromagnetism shouldn't go through to the wheel. Um, and it starts turning. Okay, great. How do you know it was the participant and not the researcher that was doing it? And there have been cases where it, it, you know, the wow, this one researcher always gets success and other people don't. And it looks like it's the researcher that may be uh, doing the PK. So if you had a, machine to attempt to do spoon bending for you by just warming and, and rubbing the, say, the neck of a spoon. Um, and it bent in a way that involved the use of less force. And I actually like this because you could measure the exact force being applied by the machine. Whereas you can't do that with your hands because your hands don't contain sensors that can currently be plugged into a meter and read how much force you're applying. Um, But uh, you could do that with a machine, and that would be great because it would if if it's less than what normally would need to happen, that would be evidence of psychokinesis working. Or, but the question would then be whose. You know, is it the researcher that's causing the spoon to bend this way? If all you do is have a machine bend a spoon, it could be that the machine bent the spoon naturally with no psi involved, or it could be that there was psi assistance from the researcher or someone else who was witnessing the event. So you'd still need to account for the experimenter effect.
0: But in principle, it sounds like a very interesting experiment. I think the way you could design that experiment is if you isolated the machine in a lab where it cannot be observed and had it set to begin the experiment at a random time and recorded locally, not streamed or anything Mm -hmm. like that. So isolated from the experimenter. Mm -hmm. This and that's a that's exactly the kind of thing.
1: And so, very good thinking, Dom. That's Thank exactly you. the the kind of thing that parapsychological researchers do in designing their experiments. They that's a way of making it harder for a, for living agent psi to affect the situation. The it doesn't make it impossible mm-hmm. um, because we don't know the limits of psi. It could be this is a, what's known as the super psi hypothesis, but it could be that because it involves a more advanced kind of sigh. Uh, But if the researcher precognizes when the machine is going to activate the experiment, he could subconsciously direct his PK to that moment. Um, Or... If he's psychokinetic and the, uh, the machine, the computer controlling the experiment is using a random number generator, the experimenter's PK might affect the random number generator right. and then affect the experiment to determine when the experiment happens and then affect the experiment itself. Um, so you, one of the recurring issues that gets discussed in parapsychology is the impossibility of ruling out the supersci hypothesis, at least at this point, mm. um, because it's evidentially indistinguishable from some other things. So the goal frequently is not to completely eliminate the supersci hypothesis; it's to um, make it as hard as possible uh, for supersci to explain something by adding layers of complexity, so that uh, what's called the sometimes called the crippling complexity argument can apply such that if Psy worked that way, it would be cripplingly complex. Gotcha. And so
0: that's but that's um, that's some good thinking there. Thank you. Uh, I've been learning over the past four and a half years. (laughs) So our next feedback comes from Paul Esmond, wrote on Facebook, Jimmy, you guys always calmly go down the rabbit hole. It's always a great listen. Thank you for sharing. And thank you, Paul. It's our pleasure to do so. Harry Andrew wrote on Facebook, an incredibly interesting episode that I wasn't convinced I'd find interesting. I thought it was all bogus nonsense, but it appears there's something actually something to it. Yeah, I had a similar
1: journey on this subject. Um, The uh, originally I thought it was uh, the spoon vending was all just, you know, misperception and hoaxing. Um, But uh, but I've had to become more open to the possibility. And uh, as I looked into it and then having done it myself and yeah, that didn't feel like I used as much force as I, as I should have. And now it doesn't
0: want to move anymore. You know, um, it, I've had to become more open to this. So the next one comes from Nanagaga Gaga, 2001 on YouTube, who wrote, I was a teenager when Yuri Geller became famous for bending spoons. It amazed everyone, including me. I've always wondered though, assuming it is possible to bend spoons telekinetically, what use is that? I've never seen anyone use this so-called psychic or paranormal skill in any kind of practical way, so what's the point? I guess I'm too pragmatic.
1: Well, I understand that it. Um, I think the point is just to demonstrate that psychokinesis may be real. That's why people do this. There's no further practical purpose unless you want to bend a spoon for an art project. In which case, you don't need to use psychokinesis; just use force. Um, <clears throat> but it is, you know, if you're someone who's interested in can this happen, you're coming from a kind of skeptical Western background. It can be an impressive demonstration, and I, I think that's the only point here. I have read accounts of, like, back in the 70s, Yuri Geller would try to demonstrate this, to, and I think Yuri Geller, at least much of the time with metal bending, is likely hoaxing. Um, but people would give him their keys, and he would bend them, and it's like, why did you give him your key? You cannot use that key now. How are you going to get back in your apartment or house or car? I mean, uh, so I I don't understand why people would be giving him keys to bend because that would have a positively detrimental effect.
0: This is very true. Uh, the next feedback comes from Tyrannosaurus Imperator on YouTube, who writes, I wonder if anyone has tried running tests on the metal while it's being bent. I'd be interested in seeing hardness and the stress strain curves. Before, during, and after being manipulated, I'd be very interested in that too um i I'm
1: sure there would be ways to set it up, but the problem you're gonna encounter or the difficulty you're gonna have to overcome is you need in, in at least in high school uh, and uh or kindergarten and high school level bending um you need the person's hand in there and you need space for the for the metal to bend so that like in my case, the bowl of the spoon has, you know, has basically done a 180. I've got a 180 turn in the metal here. Um, and how would you get measuring apparatus onto it? I mean, you might, you, and there's a challenge here. It's presumably solvable. You might be able to get, for example, really small, um, sensors that you could put on different parts of it and they could move around, move around freely. But uh, you're going to have to allow the person's hand in there, at least their fingers without um, uh, without hurting their their fingers. And you're going to have to allow for the sensors you're using to be attached to the the metal in a way that still provides it room to bend. Now, with college level bending or grad school level bending, where you're just holding the base of the spoon and you cause the bowl to flop over um, that you would you would need movable sensors, but at least you wouldn't have the problem of the person's hand in the way.
0: The next one comes from Melissa Palermo, who wrote on YouTube. My goodness, for fun, I grabbed a spoon from my drawer after I heard your experience. I rubbed it, but didn't yell. I was holding my baby in one hand and just rubbed my fingers over rather weakest part of the spoon for a few seconds with my other hand. I felt it do something weird, so I turned it. I was looking at it sideways. When I looked at it from the front, it was bent, tilted really not going to lie, kind of weirded me out. Now I have a crooked spoon, LOL. I'm only disappointed I don't have a before pick. Well,
1: congratulations, Melissa. That's great. Um, at least you have a souvenir now that you can show
0: people and tell them about the experience. And our next feedback comes from IIGBII on YouTube, or Igby. Spoon bending has nothing to do with psychic abilities unless you're bending the spoons without anyone, anything touching it, including your hand. Also spoon bending is not related in any way shape or form to pk because pk is a psychic ability called psychokinesis meaning psyche and movement the movement of an object with your mind alone and not your hands spoon bending is called mind over matter i guess the selling point lie is to is to associate spoon bending with psychic abilities and or pk to perk people's interests, like pictures of Jesus lie about him being white just to sell the religion to white people.
1: Okay, so um, in parapsychology, uh, psychokinesis and mind over matter are two words for the same thing. Um, There's not a distinction that's drawn between them, typically among parapsychological researchers. In fact, in, in, Classes on parapsychology, they will commonly say, "Okay, so psychokinesis, also called telekinesis in the popular press, is mind over matter." That's how they explain it. Um, spoon bending: the idea is um, that bending the spoon at kindergarten and high school level, you you are touching it, um, but uh, you're you're the physical force you are using is being assisted psychokinetically. And so you are um, not having to apply the kind of force you normally would have to in order to achieve the effect you do. And and there's no reason that natural physical kinetic energy cannot be combined with psychokinetic energy. You can use the two things together in principle, which is what's happening in uh, in kindergarten and high school level spoon bending, for uh, for grad school level spoon bending, you're as I said, you're you're not applying any physical force. You just say hold the spoon by the handle, and you cause the the bowl to flop over, and that's that apparently happens too at spoon bending parties. Um, but there's not in principle a reason why you can't use psychic functioning to assist something that you're doing physically to make it easier. Um, In fact, there is um, a a theory that we may, or at least there's a proposal that we may be using low-level psychokinesis to navigate our environment all the time without realizing it. And we'll be talking more about that in a future episode where we we talk about weighing the soul. Um, So that'll be coming up. Um, In terms of Jesus of Nazareth, um, well, he was Jewish and ancient Israelites had a lighter skin color that most people today, most English speakers would classify as Caucasian. Um, Egyptian wall paintings show Semites like the Israelites with a light skin tone compared to that of the Egyptians. Uh, in the Bible, David is described as being red, which uh, meaning means he either had red hair or ruddy skin, which would mean it was transparent enough that you could see the blood under the skin. And one of the Proverbs uh, comments on how Ethiopians have dark skin, indicating that The Israelites, in contrast, had had light skin. Um, But, you know, this is a cosmetic matter and it doesn't make any difference to God. God loves all his children and our different skin colors, hair colors and eye colors all
0: add beauty to the
1: tapestry of mankind that God has made.
0: Excellent. Well said. Our next feedback, a bunch of feedback comes from episode 228 on the secret Cuban Missile Crisis. And the first one comes from Ben H on Discord. Gotta admit, Castro had some serious bravery for the leader of such a small country to assert itself as an equal to both the Americans and the Soviets in negotiations at the time. It's also seriously surprising we don't hear about Mikoyan much at all for his role in averting the diplomatic breakdowns that might've led to catastrophe.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that, um, that, you know, now that enough time has passed, the sources on this have come out and we can have a much better understanding of what happened and appreciate the role of Mikoyan.
0: And our next feedback comes from Michael McFall on Facebook, who writes, I love being surprised by new historical stories. This was all new to me, and it was both fascinating and quite scary. Thanks for the great episode
1: i uh, glad you enjoyed it. I always look for the surprise factor in stories that I'm considering doing. Um, I reject a lot of stories because they're not surprising enough. Um, over Christmas this year, my writing project was to do a whole bunch of mysterious world scripts, and so I did that. And there are some really surprising stories coming up. I'm not going to reveal much about them because the less you know
0: going into the episode, the more amazing it is. Oh, yes. <laughs> Our next feedback comes from Cristobal Gomez Gutierrez on YouTube, who writes, Hi, would you please discuss from the faith point of view of how or if a lie saved lives in this case? Was it licit or sin? Please develop more how this lie is part of the mentioned God's providence. OK, so um, Mikoyan lied to Castro, telling
1: him that there was a law, an unpublished law in the Soviet Union that prevented the transfer of nuclear weapons to ownership of nuclear weapons to third parties. And he told that lie because he had concluded that Castro was emotionally unstable and could not be trusted with nuclear weapons, that the risk was too great uh, to allow Castro to uh, to possess nuclear weapons and uh, if that assessment is correct then Castro might very well have started a nuclear war and killed people and so by denying an unstable Castro nuclear weapons and lying to cover that fact um, uh, Mikoyan may have have saved lives and so yes uh, there there is an argument here that Mikoyan saved a bunch of lives. And um, whether that's legitimate or not will depend on your theory of lying. Uh, if you think that lying is never permissible, then what Miko Yan did would not be permissible. But if you think that it can be permissible to save lives, like if Nazis come to your door and say, do you have Jews in the attic? You could lie to them you think that's okay um then there's a good case to be made that the lie that miko Young told to castro was morally permissible uh, for what it's worth uh if you if you look at various theologians like Tom, thomas thomas aquinas he's going to say and he's he is he's not unique among theologians on this point but he's also not everybody there, there are people who will disagree with Aquinas on this, but Aquinas is, will say you can never lie. But when you look at the actual behavior of churchmen in crisis situations, during World War II, Pius Twelfth authorized lies to save Jewish people from Nazis. And uh, during the, um, the Argentinian um, dictatorship period where they were disappearing people, uh, Pope Francis, uh, as as a bishop uh, lied in order to save people, and so when you look at the actual behavior of churchmen, they when push comes to shove, they tend to they tend to think that yeah, it's okay to lie in order to save lives.
0: Our next grouping of feedback comes from our episodes two twenty nine and two thirty on Ellen G White, the Seventh Day Adventist prophet. The first one comes from Ex Occidente on Twitter, who wrote finished this two-parter today. Couldn't be more fair and balanced, as is Jimmy's trademark style. Well done. I really enjoyed it and learned a great deal. Thank you, ex occidente. Um, this episode w-
1: took a little bit more research than a lot of episodes that I do because I was having to break new ground. Uh, if in in looking for evaluations of Ellen Gould White. I was regularly running into, I disagree with her theology. So this must be a false prophecy. And it's like, no, I don't want to turn this into just a theological argument. I want to look at it from a neutral perspective. Um, that and, and say, what is the evidence regarding her prophecies investigated from a new religiously neutral perspective? And so that meant I had to do more work. Um, since there was a lot of the material I was encountering. It's just, nope, this is theological. I'm not critiquing her on that basis.
0: Jdub on our Discord server writes, "I was inter- It was interesting to me to hear the part about how Ellen said, either to take her prophecies as face value, either from God or from Satan, makes me wonder how many denominations which struggle with papal infallibility, often through misunderstandings more than malice, also have a prophet who supposedly speaks infallibly on many more topics. Yeah.
1: Um, now, coming from a, a Protestant perspective, uh, Ellen had a kind of Protestant view of the way revelation works, and that does always require infallibility. The Catholic view is more flexible than that, in that it recognizes that private revelation, which is not the same thing as a biblical prophet has, um, it, you know, the, the consciousness of the seer can mix in elements that are not guaranteed to be true. And so you have to have a bit of a more sophisticated approach in evaluating a private revelation. But... Um, but Ellen was convinced I'm the same as biblical prophets. I'm I'm getting the same kind of inspiration. And so everything I say uh, is true. And there's a one strike
0: and you're out rule if that's the kind of prophecy you're claiming to receive. Our next feedback comes from G McFly on our Discord server. And he writes, hearing that James White passed under the care of John Harvey Kellogg. Yeah, I should say
1: James White is Ellen G White's husband not the current apologist named James
0: White. Very good point to make. Mm -hmm. So hearing that James White passed under the care of John Harvey Kellogg, I can't help but wonder if we've got a possible serial killer on our hands here (laughs) yeah
1: serial spelled
0: c-e-r-e-a-l
1: um yeah uh good one mcfly
0: (laughs) and then uh we have another comment from uh, shupiuliuma on discord who writes one thing jimmy did not mention is that ellen g white claimed the pope was the antichrist and his title vicarius filii dei which is not an actual title of the pope adds up to 666.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't mention that because I was using a non-theological angle. Um, that would have had the, if I'd gone into that, it, at least if I'd gone into it in any depth, I mean, I would have had to explain what gamatria is, which is the use of the adding up of numbers for letters in ancient languages and numerical systems. I would have had to explain that. And I would have had to talk about the Pope and the Antichrist, and it would have skewed the discussion more theologically. And it was like, Who? And so I I chose not to go there. Um, Interestingly, and because I didn't mention that, I didn't mention this next thing. But interestingly, if you take the name Ellen Gould White and add up the Latin numbers in it, you also get six, (laughs) six, six.
0: Then John D. Lewis writes on Facebook, she might have been okay if she didn't get hit with that rock in the head. Maybe she thought Jesus was Jesus before the rock incident. Maybe that's what made her think Jesus was Michael. They've done recent scientific studies, and when they turn off your frontal lobe, you answer more atheistically. So there could be something to that rock-to-the-head story of hers. I haven't seen such a study. Um, I've heard vague
1: things about such studies. And yeah, sure, if you turn off parts of people's brains that enable them to reason, you're going to get different results. Um but uh white clearly was not atheistic and i mean at least outwardly she was very religious um you could argue that maybe it was all an act and she was secretly an atheist but You'll, you need to provide evidence for that. Uh, outwardly, she was very religious and uh, temporal lobe epilepsy is at least reported to be associated with hyperreligiosity in some cases, and temporal lobe epilepsy can be induced by traumatic brain injury like she suffered.
0: The next feedback comes from Kathy Sehu on Facebook, who writes, there's a TED talk by Tony Jack about the two parts of the brain, rational and aesthetic, philosophical, religious and how one, only one can be working at any given time. Interesting. He also says that people with a sincere religious practice, not just social church attendance, live seven to 10 years longer. Amazing if that's true. So I haven't seen this talk. I would
1: be interested in the hypothesis that different, uh, certainly different brain regions are used in different things we do. Um, I'm suspicious of claims that they're that you've either got to be rational or you've got to be aesthetic, philosophical, religious. Uh, I mean, reason and philosophy are something I know about being an academically trained philosopher. And now nah, you use reason when you're doing philosophy. So I'm a bit suspicious of and I also doing theology myself. I use it there, too. Um so I'm a bit suspicious of this distinction and I'd be interested to see how he phrased it and it, maybe he put it in a way that was a little more nuanced. Um but in terms of a regular uh people who are active in religious practice living longer on average that is true. Um the there there is a there is a survival benefit to religion and religious people are happier and live longer. Than non-religious people. And it is the fact that evolution, the fact that, that um, religion is a human universal, that it appears in every culture of itself would suggest that there is a survival value to it and that it would be selected for on an evolutionary basis. That's why human societies are religious is because we've, from a scientific perspective, we have evolved that way. And if God is in control of evolution, duh, you know He's going to want to bring in rational beings to know and love Him, and so He would guide us down this path. Um, but it is definitely true there are numerous emotional and health benefits uh, that come from being religious. And in 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 unless if you're a skeptic, unless you're sure it's false you really ought to try it because it really does produce good benefits.
0: The next feedback comes from Uma Bridge on YouTube, who writes, I'm a former Adventist, and what is presented in this video is true about Ellen G. White and the SDA movement. I was a Sabbath school superintendent, deaconess, lay evangelist in 2018. In 2018, a huge red flag was raised during adult lesson study when it was discussed from Ellen White. <clears throat> that the Sabbath will be the seal of God and Sunday worship will be the mark of the beast. But this teaching is not supported by the Bible. As I dug deeper into her visions and compared them with the Bible, I found a lot of heresies. Great video. Keep it up. Thank you very much, Uma. Uh, glad that you found it
1: helpful. You you raised issues that are all true. I didn't go into them because of I was taking a non-theological approach to, I was trying to just do, you know, a parapsychological approach of What does the evidence suggest about her visions Um, from a religiously neutral perspective? But I'm glad that uh, you found it helpful. Thank you so much.
0: Uh, Then finally, Ray Lambarte on YouTube writes, You're wrong, friend, to say that the second coming of Jesus in Mark chapter 13 is not in the mind of the disciples, because if you read Matthew 24, 3, the return of Jesus was part of the questions. Okay, so there is an additional final question
1: in at the beginning of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, and there is additional final material at the end of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew. And this material, which includes, for example, the parable of the sheep and the goats, clearly deals with the end of the world. So the additional final material in Matthew is... At the end of the Olivet Discourse is best understood as answering the additional final question at the beginning of the Olivet Discourse. And um, it is about the end of the world. But that means the initial earlier material in Matthew's version, which is paralleled in Mark and Luke, is best understood as answering the initial earlier question, which is about the destruction of the temple. So that big block of material that you find in all three Gospels is best understood as dealing with the destruction of the temple, which is the only question that it's set up with in Mark and Luke. And then because there's an additional question in Matthew, you get this additional material at the end that deals with the end of the world.
0: All right. And that brings us up to Halloween. Episode 230 brought us right to Halloween. And we have a little special edition here, something personal. Uh, My son, Benedict, was looking for a Halloween costume to wear. And since he's a Boy Scout, naturally, he thought of the radioactive Boy Scout. And so David, I, David Hahn, yeah, <laughs> I put on the screen for the video. If you're if you're watching a picture of my son Ben in his uh, costume, I'll describe it. He's wearing his scout uniform, and he's got a sign around his neck, and it's got a the radiation uh, symbol, and it says "Caution: Radioactive Boy Scout." And uh, it yeah. was quite popular among the neighbors. Uh, they all thought it was quite, quite interesting. And we got a chance to explain to to several people what that means. So,
1: <laughs> yeah. And even if you don't know the idea who David Hahn was, the idea is interesting.
0: And yes.
1: I you mentioned to me, Dom, that um, that you'd thought about seeing if Mysterious World listeners want to make Mysterious Halloween costumes, and so uh, maybe next year, um, if people uh, have a mysterious Halloween costume, either based on one of our episodes or not, um, send us a picture, and yeah. we'll uh, look at including it in a feedback episode.
0: Yeah, or if you've got pictures from this past Halloween of a of a mysterious world-based ep- uh, costume, send them in all, you know now, and we'll 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 save them up and share them. Uh, that would be that would be fun. That's a lot of fun. All right. So that's all of our feedback this time. You too can send in your mysterious feedback on any of the topics we cover. You can do so by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515 that's 619-738-4515 or you could post a comment on our youtube channel see the star youtube channel youtube.com slash StarQuest media or youtube your youtube channel jimmy at youtube.com jimmy aiken and did you want to tell folks a little bit about your youtube channel oh yeah yeah i
1: <laughs> forgot um Like and subscribe, like and subscribe, like and subscribe. I'm trying to grow my channel, and so I really appreciate it if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that YouTube will actually tell you when I have a new video, whether it's a Mysterious World video or one of the other
0: videos I do. Excellent. I have to give you the opportunity. Uh, yeah, thank <laughs> you. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes on this for this episode on mysterious.fm slash 241A. And remember to help us continue to produce the podca- podcast, please visit sqpn.com give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken. thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.